I don't know if you should hold it against me or against him. Um, but I think if, you, if I could be here longer, you would get to know me and know that a lot of jokes rubbed off on me. Oh, oh, oh. And uh, my wife is saying she knows Joe not as long as I have, but she knows there's a lot of mischief behind this childlike uh, uh, face that I have. Um, he put up with me for I don't know how many years you taught Bible class, Butch, um, but he was patient with me, and he got me and the other boys up in TR. Now, whether they would agree with this or not, to understand and appreciate the kings, the judges, the dusty material we find in our Old Testaments. And he let me be me, and I still learned a lot. And later on, even after I was out of high school, I considered Butch as another father to me for a long time. And I still do, even though there's thousands of miles between us. I miss them dearly, but I am glad they're here, and I'm glad they're with you. Um, You don't remember me. I'm sure of that. (laughs) Um, I was a lot thinner. I had more up top, and I was quiet, and I sat back in that corner when Butch and Karen and Christy brought me down for a vacation or two. But I remember uh, one of your lessons, Dave. It stuck with me. It sticks with me. And I may not remember the title. But I remember you got up and you stood before us on a Sunday morning. And you it seemed to be extemporaneous. It was off the cuff. It was what you learned that week. If I remember, and memory is leaving me as I'm 41. Um, that's funny, right? <laughs> You were a couple car lengths behind maybe your son or if you had a daughter. And they were in an accident and you, I believe, saw it transpire in front of you. If memory serves. And one of your points was, and you didn't say it this way, it was much more poetic. Not taking things for granted. Your lesson stuck with me and that was over 17, 18 years ago. My whole reason for even texting or messaging um, Dave for preaching is because when I'm away, uh, it helps me focus. If I can preach where I'm going, it helps me stay prescient and stay with what I'm supposed to be, and that's a disciple. And here I see a room full of like-minded disciples. And isn't it interesting, we pray to the same God, we worship out of the same book, and we have the same mindset and focus on serving our God. And we are what? Disciples of Christ, right? Disciples of Christ, meaning we should, in spiritual matters, take our cues from Him. He is our supreme example in those things. All things. We bear His name when we go out into the world. The world should see less of Theron Smith and more of the Savior who died for the sins of mankind. A lot of my preaching recently of home has been about communication and speech and what we say to one another, how we say things to one another. Where does it stem from? 
Where does it originate? In the heart of man, which should mimic the heart of the Savior. And invariably, we come across answers. Answers that we would give. And they may not even be vocal answers. They may just be a look that we have. It might be our demeanor. It may be how we just treat one another. A courtesy that we might use. But our answers, they matter. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I hope I'm not being too loud. If I am, just someone do this. Because my voice, uh, as one other deacon up home says, Theron, when you start, you just let it go. (laughs) So if I'm too loud, just tell me to step back. John chapter 1. And look at how John begins his Gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. The darkness comprehended it not. Our speech as disciples is different. And you might be thinking, of course it is. Sort of an aha, we know that. And that's okay. Our speech is different and that's okay. And why is it that it's okay that our speech as disciples of Jesus Christ is different? And that's good. That's okay. Well, let's use how John begins his Gospel account to sort of give us the idea of how that is the case. The vision or light metaphor to illustrate our point. Light and dark are what? They are diametrically opposed. Where one is, there is the absence of the other. And what does John say about this sun? The Son of God, just Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind. He was the light and He was with God. And He is the light of the world and light shines in darkness. What Jesus exemplified and what He taught, what He became was not understood by the world at large, was it? It wasn't readily understood by even those in the first century. Why was that? Do you ever think that? Why was the message or the light that Jesus brought to the world, why was it not readily accepted and grabbed onto such as someone who was so thirsty they'll take a drink of any salt water they could find if they're that thirsty? Why? Their choice not to? Of course. It wasn't because that Satan had worked too hard on them. That the adversary's play was just too difficult to see through. Was that? It could be. Sure. It could be that the Pharisees, was, was their message just too powerful and gripping? That the, the populace in the first century in Jesus' day, they couldn't see through it to see the real message and light that Jesus brought. It could be that too. But a simpler, more piercing answer, and one that affects us today and we see today, Jesus was, is, different than the world. And the message that He brings is different than anything else that the world will see and hear. 
Because the world doesn't want to readily accept light, does it? Where darkness is, it would rather not have light shine on it to expose what's wrong with it. It doesn't want to be. And we can understand that. Because a world that's governed and sort of run by this prince of air, by the adversary, where temptation and sin are seemingly around every corner, it's awash in darkness. And they've been that way for X amount of years. Think about the time you spent in the world outside of the body of Christ. Was it a period of years? Were you fortunate enough to receive that message of, of light and truth and life relatively young? Think about the time you spent away from Christ, away from God. Many just struggle to find something. They look in all the wrong places though, don't they? They reach, they grasp, we reach, we grasp, and we fail because we've searched for just the same type of things. Never finding the truth. Never finding the light. Never finding life. We're grasping and trying all the same things. And when we think we've tried everything, but not the one thing that would aid us. Christ the true light. Christ is different than everything else a sinful world has to offer. So shouldn't it not follow that our speech is different? Our answers are different. And that's okay. Darkness comprehends it not. Doesn't understand it. Doesn't want to be exposed by it. And so our speech should be different. And it should mimic the Savior's. And so we are called. Philippians 2 and verse 15. Paul writes to Philippians and says very much the same, that we should have that same spirit, that we should have that same heart inside of us. He writes that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Do you see that? You could easily see the word in darkness there. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shine as lights in the world. And even from deep within, humankind is separated by what comprises the heart. Would you say that's true? What's inside? Those of the Heavenly Father are full of what? Mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. And those of the world, less noble. Ignorance and vanity. Self-pleasure, selfishness. And as with all things in discipleship under Christ, what's in the heart distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Wisdom. Wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. So we can ask the obvious question, what is more valuable? Silver or dust?
our speech ought to be different and that is okay. We could scratch okay and we could put instead there precious. Precious. Because what should we have at the ready in our speech of what we should communicate with those in the world? What does the Apostle Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-7? through 7? Most of my lesson verses are on the outline. This one is not. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul here is speaking about what he is ministering, what he is teaching, what he is preaching, and the importance of it. And should we not have the same in our speech? When we speak with those of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Paul says, Paul writes, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servant, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, there is again the same thing, the light and the darkness, the difference there. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have that light and the gospel message within us. So our speech is different. It's okay. More than that, it is precious. The disciple's speech is different, right? Okay, we've established that. And that's expected. It's to be expected, is it not? what, What is the definition of insanity? You know, I Googled it, right? I wanted to make sure I got it close to being right. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting something different. That's insanity. And you've done it too in your life. We all have. Over and over and expecting a different result. And see, our responses when asked ought to scream different. Peculiar. There's that word that we'll come across in the King James. Peculiar. But a 21st century definition. And this grows off the previous point. When someone outside the body of Christ asks you about your faith, why you do or don't do certain things, why you speak a certain way, why you don't join in the crowd at the water cooler with the filthy joke or the gossip. It is a given that they know or have seen something different about you in the first place. So it follows that your response will be something different that they themselves perhaps hadn't thought of before. You ever think that way? That maybe when you don't, that provides opportunity. Maybe when you speak with grace, that provides opportunity. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 15. You knew I was going to touch on this eventually, right? When you saw 
our answers. And knowing that we're disciples of Christ, this was eventually going to come out in our lesson, right? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter writes, But sanctify or separate in your heart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Is it interesting that Peter writes this? Because when could he have given a reason for the hope that was in him and he chose instead to deny, deny, and swear and deny? And Peter grew. And he was able to write this by inspiration. And is it not profitable for us? Is it not important for us? Because the answer that we may give it may surprise them. And then what can that do? I used the word before and I gave away my, my point for this. When we answer, what can that do? That provides opportunity. Are we looking for opportunities to spread the gospel? Am I? And I need, I don't preach on things that I don't need. I need this lesson as much as anyone else. Are we looking for opportunities? What about the answers that we give? Have we looked at what we give is why we come to church when we do? Why we separate that time in our lives to make sure this is important? Because I've had that question myself. And I understand I'm only 41. But I've had the question more times than not. Why do you need to go to church three times a week? What does my answer then permit? It should give an opportunity. Or, be, or am I just too timid to really answer the question honestly? I hope not. Now, I understand. I know what the wisdom literature says about to everything that there is a season. I understand that. And I understand the Savior and His woes upon the Pharisees. And I understand how Jesus used harsh words when, when the uh, upbraiding of the disciples was necessary. I understand all of that. Let me ask you a question. How do you read James chapter 3? James chapter 3. When you come across that in your daily Bible reading or Bible study, do you read James chapter 3 as an inevitability? As something that James writes that you know you're not going to overcome, that you know you can't overcome, that you know the battle is already lost with this fight that you have with your tongue and what comes out of your mouth. That it's an inevitability. That it's a total loss. Chalk it up now. Do you read James chapter 3 that way? We have a tendency to. Perhaps we should look at the conclusion or the application that James wishes to make in James chapter 3 and what he was driving to. Let's look there first. Look at James chapter 3 and verse 10. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. They ought not to be. By inspiration, James clues us in on God's expectation for those who would be His children. Do we have blessings and cursings from the same mouth in the same day, in the same hour, in the same half hour? Do I? 
It ought not to be so. And see, for practical Christianity, James writes that blessings and cursings from the same mouth, and trace that even further, from the same heart, is really against nature. Because look at verse 11. Does a fountain send forth the same place both sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. James says when we have blessings and cursings, that's against nature. That's against nature. And see, neither is what I can deduce from what James is writing to us or leaving us by inspiration here. Is that a Christian can't really be a Christian if he offers both blessings and cursings. Rather, in those preceding verses, instead of reading those preceding verses in the beginning of James chapter 3 as inevitability, as they're just givens, James is noting how extremely difficult it really is to control one's tongue. How difficult it is. Because he, what does he do? He mentions and compares what the damage that the mouth can do with just a small kindle of fire. And you all know what fires do in nature down here. Immeasurable damage. And sometimes the damage we do perform or cause with our mouth is irrevocable. And James says in verse 2, If any man defend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. I read the verse as a challenge. And one we all must take the mantle up for. It's difficult. Our speech is different and it's to be expected. But guess what? It's not easy. Not easy. Go on. Disciples' speech is different and can be effective. Effective. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. You know, Peter and John got into trouble early on, early and often, we might say, with what they said and what they were doing in and around the temple proper in Jerusalem. Peter and John got into trouble in Acts chapter 3. They they were walking to the temple as was their custom, as was Jesus' custom, it seems, going to basically the same place uh, that Jesus had went before. And they heal a man. And they begin drawing a crowd because the crowd that had assembled there had seen this lame man for years and years and years begging for alms, begging for help. That was how this lame man got through day to day. And all of a sudden, this man is exuberant and cheerful. And now he's allowed past that outer gate and inside the assembly. And Peter and John are drawing a crowd and they begin doing what? They begin preaching and teaching. (laughs) And it's effective. 
And the people are responding to the message. And they want to hear more about this Jesus because Peter and John are quick to tell them. It's not because we have this otherworldly doctor education and can heal people with just our, our, our hands or medicine. That's not how we did this. By the power of Jesus Christ, they were able to do these miracles. And they're drawn in. They want to hear more. They want to know more. And Peter begins launching into his other lesson and goes in to speak about the resurrection. And that draws the ire of the Sadducees who do not believe in anything after they pass from life. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees call for their cronies to come and stop the whole process towards the end of chapter 3 of Acts. And they take Peter and John and hold them overnight... And on the next day, they're brought before the chosen of the Sanhedrin. And brought to this little questioning. Let's not call it a trial, but a questioning. And the Sanhedrin want to know why Peter and John were saying what they were saying, and why they were doing what they were doing, and how, by what authority, I think we spoke about that Wednesday night, by what authority they were doing the things they were doing. So Peter, being the spokesman, answers their question. In verse 12, we know that famous verse, Neither is there any salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Even in his questioning of the Sanhedrin, Peter is trying to reach them. Do you see that? whereby we must be saved. Not just Peter and John, but everyone who's hearing him speak. Peter's trying to reach the Sanhedrin, who we understand and we know their hearts are stoned, they will not be swayed, but Peter tries. And look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now we sometimes will look at this verse and say that they took knowledge and knew that they had been with Jesus because Jesus was from Galilee. That these men were from Galilee, which we would consider to be akin to the hill country. Uh, of the area. Now, where I'm from, I'm from West Virginia. You've heard all the jokes. But I don't sound like I'm from West Virginia, do I? I don't have a twang, and I have all my teeth, and all those jokes. But I've been called a hillbilly, and I don't take umbrage at that. I'm from West Virginia. You have to take it, right? Bless you. I should correct him and say I'm a mountaineer, but my loyalties to WVU don't run that deep. I root for them because my mom roots for them, and when she's happy, then I'm happy too. See what we're saying? You see what is being unveiled here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13? They marvel, and they marvel for maybe a few different reasons. Because Peter and John, do you think that they went to the schools, that the Sadducees, Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots perhaps, did they go to those schools and sit under the feet of wise orators of the old law? No. What were Peter and John? 
fishermen. Fishermen. But they spoke with boldness. They answered the Sanhedrin basically, seemingly off the cuff. No, they were so confident of the message that Peter just answers them. They do not deliberate. They don't think about their response. It's from within a heart that's pure. Perhaps guided by the Holy Ghost, but they answer them boldly. And they marvel. They had to be with Jesus. They had to have been. I want us to understand something here. Their background did not hinder them. The fact that they were uneducated, per the definition of the world, did not hinder them. Is that clear? Didn't stop that. Are any of you Harvard educated lawyers? Are any of you Ivy League uh, graduates or doctors skilled in the art of forensic speech pathology? Now, I don't know my audience, and maybe some of you are, but I would say that you're the exception and not the rule. None of us are on par with the education of the Sadducees and Pharisees. We're more on par with the education of Peter and John. So, okay. Oh, that's great then. Thank you for that aside. That was great. But your point is, a disciple's speech is different and can be effective. Okay? So, was their response effective? Well, the populace knew who Peter and John were, and by whose authority they were able to do and say what they did and said. The populace was responding, positively, I might add, to the gospel message. But see, the reaction that Peter and John received from the Sanhedrin, it was certainly expected by Peter and John. But the hearts of the Jewish high court, it remained unmoved. So we ask again, was this response by these two disciples a success? Was it effective? One perspective. This put them squarely in the crosshairs of the enemies of their master. No longer could Peter and John nor the rest of the apostles really uh, do what they did and try to hide. Not that they ever did. But now they know. Now they have crosshairs on their back. Now they're targets, much like their Savior was, their Master was, their Rabbi, their teacher. Another way to see it, this was a mighty success. Because what and how they answered the Sanhedrin proved their discipleship under Jesus, whom that Sanhedrin assumed was dead. You remember the lengths that they went to the Pharisees and the other priests to to secure the tomb and to to make all these accusations that the disciples must have taken it. And they refused even the the, uh, example and the testimony of an open tomb. But now Peter and John are saying we're able to do this because of Jesus, who they crucified, who they thought was finally they were rid of. It didn't work that way. 
there's a word that we don't like to use during worship. And maybe we don't even like to use it outside of these walls. And I've shied away from it. And maybe because it's become too denominational. (laughs) Do you know what the word is? Testify. Does that have a bad connotation when you first kind of let that in your ears? Maybe it doesn't down here, but we don't use the word testify up at TR not all that often. But I hope we're applying what that means. And the reasons are unknown is why we shy away from the world. But see, listen, and we all know this too. See, once we were all found guilty before the eyes of a righteous God, right? We all were. And yet by His abundant mercy, He pardoned us by offering His Son in our place. As we commemorated, remembered, and partook in the Lord's Supper just a few moments ago. In so many words, our awful choices broke our relationship with Him. Romans 3.23, you know the verse, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all been left wanting in God's gaze of what is righteous. But once we are welcomed back into God's family, God expects us to be what? Entirely different. Why else would Peter pen about the awful imagery of one who has come out of sin like a pig who goes back to the things that made him filthy, the dog who has just thrown up to go back to eat the thing he has just thrown up. Why do we have that striking imagery? God expects us to be different once we're redeemed. And I cherish how David's heart was after his heinous sins, plural, sins, against Bathsheba, against himself, and against his God. Do you read the accounts that unfold for us about David when his wandering eye and sleepless nights fell upon Bathsheba and her beauty bathing on top of the house? You know, we might think of just the adultery that, that transpired, and that's one sin, but there were a legal path full of things that David did wrong against all parties considered. Do you think that weighed on him? Do you think those sins provided a weight of guilt that perhaps he could not find rest from? I love and I wish to mimic the heart of David when he pens Psalms 51, verses 12 and 13. David writes, and the beginning verses of Psalms 51 are, you can read them, and it's David pouring out his soul, telling God what God already knew about the state which David had found himself, this pit that he can't claw out of, that there's no escape. And you read the first few verses as David spiraling into a depression that he can't get out of. And have we all been in a situation like that? Of our own making, perhaps. Things that we've done that have made this pit, you can't see the light. And David writes that way. And he comes to understand 
that God is the only way out. That's the only answer. And not only is God the answer, what does David then write? He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Does not verse 13 give us all we need to understand The testify doesn't have to be a nasty word or idea with us. Because David did it. Do you not think Paul did the same? Do you not think Peter did the same when they taught and preached? A disciple's speech is different and can be effective. And so can it be with us. It should be with us. Think of it. The attitude and display of a contrite heart was and is altogether different than the rest of the world that would wish to either glory in unrighteousness or just cover it up. Do you see that? When we show godly remorse, a changed heart, a contrite heart, that's different than everything else the world has seen. There's another answer that you're going to have to give. And I don't know when that's going to be. But you're going to have to prepare to give an answer, right? We all will. And we're going to have to give an answer for how we've responded to the Gospel message. How we've responded to the mercy and love and grace of an Almighty God. And we'll stand before Him and all the books will be open. Nothing that you have done, said, thought about doing, or thought about saying will be left out. And you will have to answer for what you've done for your whole life. What will your answer be? The Gospel call is extended to you even this very morning. If you've yet to name God as your God and His Son as your Savior, you have today to do that. The waters of baptism are ready for that purpose. If you've wandered from the fold of God and now you find yourself, instead of being in the light of the Savior, now you're back in the shade and darkness of the Prince of Air, you are in danger. And the Gospel call is extended to you even this morning as well. If you need to respond, we plead with you to do so as we stand and sing our invitation. Please stand.